first scripture reading is the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 28. If you're using that blue Bible, it's page 588. Isaiah 28, we'll start reading in just a second at verse 14 through 22. It's a tough passage. It's a passage of God's judging His people and bringing judgment upon them. But remember as we read things like this, that uh, in the words of the Apostle Paul, that when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And that gospel promise was also to His people in the Old Testament. Also, one of the verses is mentioned here will show up in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you for morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For Yahweh will rise up as on Mount Perazim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord Yahweh of hosts against the whole land. And now we turn in our Bibles to the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 2. For those of you who are visiting, we're just doing a series through 1 and 2 Peter. And we're just picking up right where we left off, 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 4. It's page 1014. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 through 10. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves... Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Now he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, now he begins to quote other passages. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All that I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, coming to the one who is the living stone, the one who is rejected by men, but chosen by you and precious to you, help us this very day to remember better, to remember more fully whose we are, who we are, and why we are in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Somebody caught me and realized there's no sermon notes on the back. It has to do with trying to help Natalie get all the worship guides together before she goes off into surgery and recovery for the next two weeks. And so there won't be any sermon notes for the next three Sundays, I believe, uh, on the back. But there's lots of space for you to write notes. So bring a pen. So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, as we continue our series in 1 and 2 Peter, Memories, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. You know, there's a touching scene in, uh, a touching moment in Henry V, Shakespeare's Henry V. It's after King Henry, often called uh, Harry, but after King Henry makes that rousing St. Crispin's Day speech, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. After that, up gallops the French herald to present Henry and the knights an offer, one last offer when they lose. Once more I come to know of thee, King Harry, if, if for thy ransom thou wilt now compound before that thy most assured overthrow. To which in good Shakespearean form, Henry tells the herald Mount Montjoy to never return and never offer any more surrenders or any more ransoms, for he will fight to the death with his men that their destiny and his destiny are all wrapped together. As if God pleased, they shall. My ransom, then, will soon be levied. Herald, save thou thy labor. Come thou no more for ransom, gentle herald. They shall have none, I swear, but these my joints, which if they have as I will leave them them, shall yield them little. Tell the constable. (laughs) It's a great scene. I loved it. Anyways. But the point is, is that the destiny of the soldiers are all wrapped up in the king's destiny, which then brings them in this most impossible situation where they are outnumbered something like 10 to 1 at Angoncourt, how they end up winning the battle because the king has made sure that his destiny is wrapped up with their destiny and so forth. Keep that in mind. So now as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, I have broken the passage down to four simple points. If you're writing down points, coming, construction, cherished, and chosen. Coming, constructed, two hard C's, cherished, and chosen, two ch sounds. There you go. All right, there's the four points. Coming, constructed, cherished, and chosen. Coming is right there at the very beginning of verse 4, as you come to him. 
after encouraging us to crave, verse 2 and 3, to crave the pure spiritual milk at the Lord's bosom, tasting that the Lord is good, Peter now takes this image of nursing and he turns it around to coming as you come to him. It actually goes together very well with something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, that coming to Jesus is not filled with the swagger and saunter of self-assured, self-actualized people, but coming to Jesus is coming like brephos, that's the Greek word, infants, coming like brephos, infants to Jesus, being carried on their mother's hips and in their mom's and dad's arms. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Coming to Jesus is not all filled with the swagger and the saunter of self-assured, self-actualized people coming to him like nursing babes. And so we come like newborn babes to receive him. But the imagery then continues to change from from coming to being constructed. And that's the rest of verses 4 and 5. Constructed, verses 4 and 5. Now Peter takes on building imagery here. Specifically, the temple. Notice he calls what they're being built into a spiritual house. And who is in this spiritual house? A holy priesthood. And what is the holy priesthood doing in this spiritual house? They're offering spiritual sacrifices. You have to see the temple here because that's what Peter's driving at. And so Peter's construction illustration is this, that we're coming to Jesus as to a living stone. It's as if Jesus were... um, the cornerstone of a building. Now, this is totally different than the way we do things. Okay, I get it. All right? Our old church building on 25th and Chartel has this cornerstone at it, or at least it used to, uh, and it's, it's right here. Now, this is not a cornerstone in biblical sense. This is just what we started calling it. It's basically a dedication stone. It's a granite piece that hangs down like this at the very corner down here, and it says, United Presbyterian Church, 1917. Right? Some of you may remember that. All three of you maybe, right? But, but that's not really a cornerstone. That's actually a dedication stone. What Peter is driving at is an old form of masonry that was done in a huge stone building. You lay the cornerstone that has to be squared. I mean, it has to be perfectly squared. You lay the cornerstone and then you start packing the stones in the foundation and up the walls based upon that cornerstone. It all gets squared. The whole building gets squared. It all gets packed together because that cornerstone keeps it all together. That's the construction imagery he's using here. Jesus is a central stone that squares the whole building. And so, Peter says, as we are coming to him to be nursed and nurtured and nourished, we're actually now being laid together with him, squared on Jesus, in union with Jesus, constructed. In fact, the language he uses here is being built up, constructed into a living temple because of the central living stone. By the way, I'm going to come back at these verses a second time towards the end of the sermon. So if I didn't answer all your questions, I'll take another shot at it in a minute. But here's three things I want you to pick up just from verses 4 through 5 right now. 
Notice that everything in the Old Testament applies, except we're specifically changed. In those two verses, you have a temple, a priesthood, and sacrifices. Do we have a temple? Yes. Do we have a priesthood? Yes. Do we have sacrifices? Yes. Everything then in the Old Testament about temple, priesthood, and sacrifices applies in the New Testament, except we're specifically changed. You need to remember that because... Many Christians in America go the opposite direction. Nothing in the Old Testament applies except we're specifically restated in the New. And Peter says, baloney. Well, he didn't say that. I said that. But in those two verses, everything in the Old Testament applies except we're specifically changed. Secondly, Part of what Peter is doing here is he is emphasizing one aspect of this is he is emphasizing what he said back of chapter 1 verse 22 when he told us that having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And notice how he pictures it here then. He pictures us as being stones laid together. No stone missing. Every stone in that building squared on Jesus is essential for this temple being built up. No stone is missing. No stone is off doing its own thing. We're all in this together. Or as the old guy said, we either hang together or we hang together, right? We're all in this together. We need one another. That's part of what Peter's driving at here. In our union with Christ, we need one another. We have to have one another. You take out any of those stones in that building, the way it's put together like a Jenga set almost or whatever, right? You take one of those stones out, it weakens the building and may even demolish it. We have got to have one another in this union with Christ. have some more to say on that as we get towards the end. But there's the principle. Lastly, our union with Christ is being laid out here and displayed for us in graphic details in an illustrative way. On the positive side, that chief cornerstone is chosen and precious, and as we're united to that chief cornerstone, we become the same. What Jesus is by nature, he makes us by grace. What Jesus is by nature, he makes us by grace. But the other side of this is true just as too. It's guilt by association. He was rejected. And all of 1 Peter is talking about God's minority people who often get rejected because of Jesus. That union with Christ has a positive side. What he is by nature, we, he makes us by grace. But also a negative side, guilty until, uh, um, uh, guilt by association. If he is cherished, we are as well. If he is not cherished, we won't be either. And that brings us then to our third point, cherished. And you see it there in verses 5 through 8, cherished. And so our Lord with whom we are united was both precious and cherished by the Father. Look at how he says it in verse 4 and then he says it again down in verse 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Now verse 6 for as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, chose, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. United with Christ, 
who was both precious and cherished by the Father, but who was also rejected by men. You see it again in verse 4, as I mentioned, rejected by men, but you see it also down in verse 7 and 8. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. My friends, if this is the case, that our union with Christ brings us into this situation, it will be the case in both directions, as I've already said. That's why Peter says at the beginning of verse 7, and so the honor is for you who believe. It's an honor to find ourselves cherishing Jesus and being cherished by the Father. And it's an honor with Jesus to be rejected by the dominant culture. It's an honor, and so the honor belongs to you who believe. Now what Jesus is, as I said before, what Jesus is by nature, he makes us by grace, and those who are therefore united to him and cherish him find themselves cherished by the Father because of the Son. Think of that for a moment. If you belong to Jesus, if you're united to Jesus, you can actually look to heaven and say, wow, the Father cherishes me because of His cherished Son. I think there's about three of you that need to hear this again. As you look to Jesus, as you look, as you are united to Christ, to realize that just as the Father cherishes the Son, He cherishes you. Does that not ring anybody's bell for crying out loud? Thank you. Hallelujah. That's exciting news. That should float your boat in the middle of a hurricane. That should keep your heads above water. That should give you buoyancy when you're about to sink. That's exciting news. And yet for those who will not join in with the Father by cherishing the Son. Verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Now notice that last statement. That last statement may cause some to become perplexed as they were destined to do. Well, let me put it to you this way quickly. If it were not for the Father's great mercy, chapter 1, verse 3... If it were not for the Father's great mercy who caused us to be born again, we too would have continued to be conformed, chapter 114, would have continued to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. We too, verse chapter 118, we too would have remained hostage to the futile ways inherited from our forebears. We too would have stumbled and disobeyed the word. We too would have been, it would have been said of us as they were destined to do. But now, but now, because of all that God has done for us, it's being laid out even here, we can now stand up and sing with Charles Wesley. And we can sing loudly and sing with joy, with tears streaming down our eyes, with amazement. 
Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Cherished. Therefore, dear friends, those who are united to the cherished one finds themselves cherished and chosen. And that's verses 9 and 10. But Peter does something very, he's been doing it all along. He does it very pronouncedly here. Peter draws God's description of his Hebrew Old Testament people. And he takes those descriptions and he applies them to God's elect exiles, God's minority people of the New Testament. Peter takes Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, when he uses all of this chosen race, holy royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own possession, language that applied to the Hebrew Old Testament people, and he takes it and lifts it up, and he puts it upon us. He takes the language of Hosea 1, 10 and 2, 23, if you're writing notes here, Hosea 1.10 and 2.23, where God said, My people, these people, these Israelites, they're not my people, but where they have been said to be not my people, they are now my people. Where they once knew no mercy, they now know mercy. And so Peter takes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the direction of Jesus, takes that language for those Old Testament Hebrew people, and he lifts it up, and he applies it to us. He places the descriptions on Jews and Gentiles who have become united to God's Israel, to the Son, to the One who is the offspring of Abraham by whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's how you become God's Israel. It's not by ethnicity and race. It's by union with His Son. And that's why Peter takes that language and applies it to us. So God has therefore made us a people. Has made us a people who with our lips and by our lives are God's Christmas carols and hymns of praise to a busy, distracted world. As he says here in verse 9 and 10, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or as the choir sang, I just noticed this as they were singing, may voices join with every age to tell the wonder of your grace. We become God's Christmas carols and hymns of praise to a busy, distracted world. So my friends, that's... 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. We're going to come, kind of come back at it again and pick up some more. In this passage, Peter wants us to realize, remember, and reckon, 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 reckon that God, according to his great mercy by which he has caused us to be born again, has made us a significant people. Yeah, we may be the minority people of God, the elect exiles. 
in a world, in a society that wants to say we are not significant. You people are not significant. And yet Peter is hammering out that God by his great mercy has made you a most significant people. Let me put it to you this way. He has made you a rock that doesn't roll. A priest that is pleasing and a sacrifice that is savory. What do I mean by a rock that doesn't roll? Notice in verse 5, you're a living stone put in your place. Now, sometimes that means bad things, right? She put me in my place, but this means good things. God put you in your place. Right there united to Jesus. Stacked and built into the walls of God's Holy Spirit-shaped temple house, verse 5. God has put us in in our place. We are rocks that do not roll. And so you ain't a rolling anywhere, right? Rolling, rolling stone, going to see my... No, you ain't a rolling anywhere. Because he's put you in there tight. And you support the other stones and are supported by them. That's part of why Peter is actually unpacking here for us chapter 1 verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And chapter 2 verse 1. And so put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, etc. You're a rock that doesn't roll. You are supporting the other stones and they are supporting you. And all this is by God's design. He put us in our place. Now let me go from preaching to meddling. Maybe a little touchy subject. But part of what that means is, and now I'm going to talk to people who are 60 and older because I'm 60, I can do this. Part of what that means is that the young families that come to our church, we need them. We really do. When their kids start crying, we need those kids. I don't know about you, but it makes the service kind of lively, you know. But instead of, and I get it, listen, I get it. I listened to ACDC and and Black Sabbath at high levels with earphones on when I was a teenager. I fixed fighter jets doing riveting guns without ear protection. Don't tell the old sergeants I worked for. I'm losing my hearing bit by bit. I get it. You're focusing upon the sermon. God bless you. I'm glad you're focusing on the sermon. And a crying child makes you go, (gasps) But as we turn our heads and we look, we make sure you don't turn and scowl. Or turn and go, well, they should take care of their kids. My kids never cried like that. Say, what? I mean, my kids low crawled. Listen, my kids low crawled under the pews to come help me preach. And so we, we need the young family. So we look at them and we say, you know, they're rocks that don't roll. They're part of God's plan for this church. And so we turn around and we look at them with grace. And then young families, I was a young family once. I know parenting is just rife with guilt. I get it. I cannot tell you how many times I failed as a parent. I don't want to tell you. It'll just discourage you. And when those older people look at you sometimes, because the kids are, you know, whatever, don't take it personal. 
you'll be old like us one day. And you'll be doing the same thing. Show some grace. You know, they want the best for my kids. Say that, the first thing out of your mouth. They want the best for me and my kids. I get it. We work together. We're a temple being built together as stones. We're a rock that doesn't roll. Okay, I'm done. I'm done meddling. Let me go on to preaching back again. And so you are shaped and you are squared on the living stone, but you are securely shaped and securely squared together. But you're also a priest that is pleasing. Notice, it's not a priesthood of the believer, it's a priesthood of believers. We are a priesthood, a band of priests together. That's what he says in verse 5, a holy priesthood. That's what he says in verse 9, a royal priesthood. We're, We're priests together who offer what is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, a priest that is pleasing. We're proclaiming like the priest would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we do this priesthood thing, not as lone rangers, but as the team whom God has made us, encouraging one another, being patient with one another, focused Godward together with one another, pleasing God together. You're a priest that is pleasing. Lastly, you're a sacrifice that is savory. You know, it's one of the things about the Levites in the Old Testament. In fact, you got to read it. I put it in there in that scripture reading before the confession of sin from Numbers chapter 8. The priests in the Old Testament were a wave offering. They were a living sacrifice. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from from the people of Israel that they may do the service of the Lord. And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. And so the God-chosen, God-pleasing priests are savory sacrifices to the Lord. And that's what's lurking behind the Apostle Paul's statement back over in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based upon... or by the mercies of God that I just spent 11 chapters talking about here in Romans, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so we're a sacrifice that is savory together. Therefore, dear friends, you are a rock that doesn't roll. You're a priesthood that's pleasing and a sacrifice that is savory. Let me come back at this one more little bit, one more little time. My friends, united to our Lord Jesus Christ, your destiny is wrapped up and plugged into his destiny. And this is one of the important perspectives of Advent. Your destiny is fully wrapped up in his destiny. Just as, verse 4, he was rejected by men. You and I, we will be rejected at times by the prevailing culture, by our fellow citizens, friends, family, firms, and officials. If Jesus was, we will be too. Advent reminds us that our destiny is wrapped up in his destiny. 
But despite any of that, just as Jesus was in the sight of God, chosen and precious, verse 4, you too, even when you get rejected by fellow citizens, friends, families, firms, and officials, are in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Because you are in Christ, your destiny is wrapped up with His. And Advent should hammer that home to you. Our destiny is wrapped up with His destiny. Therefore, dear friends, allow this Advent season to call to your mind whose you are, who you are, and why you are. And remember that Advent reminds us that our destiny is wrapped up with and plugged into his destiny. Which means that this moment is not the be-all to end-all. Which means those talking heads can talk about us all day long. That's okay. That's how they talked about Jesus. And what did God say about Jesus? Chosen. Precious. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord God, for your Son, Jesus Christ. We come, Lord, not sauntering and swaggering in all of our self-importance and such, Lord, we come. We come like newborn babes to nurse their mother's breast. We come to be put in our place firmly squared upon your Son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we we come and ask you to smooth off our rough edges, that we may support one another and be supported by one another as we're squared upon Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we are a rock that doesn't roll, a priest that is pleasing, a sacrifice that is savory, and all of that is by the grace of God. And so as we leave today, may we remember that we are your songs, your Christmas carols to a bored and distracted world, that we are your songs of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.